Hey, today we are concluding our series titled Tasteless. Uh, this is part two of three series that are taking us through the entire story of Scripture. And so if you haven't been with us, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to the last several weeks. Um, the, the series prior to this was called All Things New. It began with Genesis, and we are working our way through the entire story of Scripture. Next week, we are beginning a new series titled A City on a Hill. So it's a little brighter because, of course, Jesus is born next week. So we're going to celebrate Christmas in March next week, which will be kind of fun. Um, and we are going to begin to understand what it means to be a city on a hill. Jesus talked about his vocation as being the light of the world, and then he passed on that same language and that same vocation to us, that we are to be a city on a hill, the light of the world. We are responsible. Wow, wow, what a powerful but challenging vocation that we are entrusted with. So we're going to talk about that as we get through the New Testament in the next several weeks before Easter. So I'd really encourage you to uh, join us and invite some friends who might be interested in learning what it means to be the church in this day and age as we talk about what it means to be a city on a hill. I want to address one thing really quick that several people have talked to me about. Um, if you've been with us, you'll know that I've, I've been pulling scripture from like all sorts of different places, right? As we talk about the story of the Old Testament, they're wondering like how you can do that if the story is chrono one chronological story, isn't that what this Old Testament story is about? And I want to clarify just a few things about how the Old Testament is laid out. Um, it's a little piece of education for you, I guess, at the very least. Um, but if you begin with Genesis and you read the story, you're going to find that it's pretty chronological all the way through 2 Kings. And then at 2 Kings, at the end of 2 Kings, the, the Israelites are carted off to Babylon and they go into exile. And then you get to 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles and you're like, didn't I just read all this? And you're like, yeah, I did just read all this because it's a recap of what the kings talked about. But one important difference is mentioned in the Chronicles in that the Chronicles talk about the Israelites coming back from exile. So it's written from a perspective of hope and restoration. And so can you imagine how different that story would have been? Telling the story of the kings, knowing that God is doing a good work now and that he is reclaiming his purposes for the people. And so you get two very different perspectives, but they're telling a lot of the similar stories. And then you recap, uh, you, you, you pick up the, the storyline again with Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther to some extent, and you find that it's chronological for the most part. But then you get into like Job and Psalms and, and Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs and Proverbs. You get in these wisdom literature, and then you get in this section of prophets, and it's like, really, what's going on here? Like uh, the, the chronology ended, but the can the Old Testament continues. And what you'll find through the poetic books, the wisdom literature, and the prophets is that they are all inserted into the chronology that we've discussed through Genesis through 2 Kings. Does that all make sense? No? Okay, good. So basically what I'm trying to say is that it is not categorized chronologically. It is categorized around four different primary themes. The Torah, the historical books, wisdom literature, and prophetic texts. Now, here's the thing. If you would like to read the Old Testament chronologically, there are a lot of Bible reading plans to do just that. If that's kind of the way that you want to do it, go to uversion.com or, or download the app, and you can find a lot of different chronological Bible reading plans. What you're going to find, though, is that as you go along, like after you get Genesis 11, does anybody know what you're going to get to next? Job. So you're going to take a break from Genesis and you're going to go read the whole book of Job. So it's going to, and then you're going to get into the Kings and you're going to be reading all of the, most of the prophetic texts as you work through first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. So you're going to find that you're jumping all over the place, constantly back and forth. Um, but there are reading plans available for you out there. Hope that was helpful. I don't know. I probably just muddied the water for you guys, but you know, so be it. A little educational point for you there. So we're going to talk about the story thus far, and then we're going to get into, I think, what might be a very hopeful message for a lot of you, and I really hope that is the case. It's not going to come without its challenges, but I hope that it is certainly the case. 
In the beginning, humans were given a vocation. We were made in God's image to accomplish something in particular. That was to bring creation somewhere beautiful. And so in the beginning, humans had a vocation. We were to represent God as his image bearers, as we loved him and as we loved others. But as we know the story goes, they failed pretty immediately after that. Adam and Eve did not follow this vacation very long into the story. They rejected God's reign. They rejected his vocation for them instead of making God's reign known and his kingdom known, they made their own reign known and their own kingdom known. They began oppressing each other, suppressing each other, and pain and hurt and bitterness rose up into the hearts of humanity and it just flooded the earth. I mean, think about it. What happens when two kings fight over the same piece of ground? I mean, war is obviously going to be the result, right? When you both claim authority over the same piece of ground, war is going to be the result. And such was the human experience where pain and hurt and turmoil and tribulation and bitterness flooded the earth and they flood the human heart. And God, from day one, promises that he's going to fix it, that he's going to solve the problem, but he is going to do it through humans. That is the way God always chooses to work is through humans. And so even this new series that we're starting, The Light of the World, A City on a Hill, God is using the church now to accomplish his tasks throughout the world. That is still how God chooses to work. The wickedness of the human heart and the violence and the abuse and the oppression that we are willing to impress on one another comes to a head in Egypt as the Israelites are then enslaved at the end of the book of Genesis. Now, Egypt wasn't just a nation, right? It was also a archetype. It was a symbol of everything that is wrong with the world. Everything that is chaotic and painful found its head in Egypt, and it was a symbol of all that was broken in the world. And so when the people cry out for deliverance, then God comes to the rescue. He comes to rescue and deliver his people from this bondage, and then he instructs them on what it means to be human, made in God's image, and what their vocation is to be. And so he gives the Israelites their vocation, which is to be priests and mediators, to represent God to the world in love for him and love for others. Does this sound familiar, right? He's given the Israelites the exact same vocation that he gave Adam and Eve. I want you now to do what I've called humanity to do, to represent me to the world. I want you to be the light to the Gentiles. I want all of the world to come to know me because of the way you live and our relationship and the way I bless you. All of the world might come under my reign into my kingdom because of the way you choose to live your life. But just like Adam and Eve, the Israelites fail. Almost immediately, they fail. They aren't set apart. They aren't any different. They're just like all the other nations. They forget Egypt. They forgot Sinai. They forgot their vocation. So they end up back in slavery. God sends the Israelites into exile among the Babylonians. And it is here, in the midst of this exile, in the midst of this pain and the bitterness and the hurt that they are experiencing, that they turn their pain into poetry. Here's what we learn from the 137th Psalm. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered Jerusalem. And there on the poplars, we hung up our harps. See, our tormentors demanded songs of joy, but how can we sing the songs of the Lord while we are in a foreign land? The Israelites hung up their harps. You see, the harps were played in the temple when worshipers came to Jerusalem to honor God and to give God thanks. The harps were played when life was good. When there was something to praise God for, that's when you played the harps. But the Israelites aren't in Jerusalem anymore. The Israelites aren't thriving anymore. The Israelites are in pain, and they are experiencing the worst of the human condition. 
They are slaves in Babylon and they are congregating by the river where they are weeping and they are mourning. Now, studies show that in our day and age, that 50% of the American population, when life is painful, when life is uncertain, when there is, life is full of doubt and we are experiencing the pain and the worst of the human condition, that 50% of our current population turns to self-pity. That is basically the, de- the default of half the people who exist within our population. Now, this is up from 20% in the 1950s when they did a similar test. So over the last 70 years or so, this is, almo- this is more than doubled. And, and why? Because we are a more entitled people. More entitled people, we expect more, and so self-pitying becomes the outcome. Our attention is turned in on ourselves and what we don't currently have. And so we cry out, why me? Why am I going through this? I don't deserve this. You know, woe is me. It's not fair. You know, another very interesting key factor in, to, the, to the growth and the rise of a self-pitying attitude and mentality among America is the rise of social media. Psychologists almost blame social media entirely almost for the rise of, of self-pitying attitude. It is the engine that drives our lack of self-esteem and our increasingly fragile egos, they would say, and it pushes us deeper and deeper into ourselves. Which, if you've been around long enough, you will know is the problem. It's my self-centered heart. It's my self-interested attitude. It is the me, 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 selfish mentality, my self-reigning life that is the problem. That perpetuates the problem. It's that human condition that is so toxic. And when the world is crashing down around me and I'm sitting in my destruction and sitting in the rubble and there's so much pain and the human condition is showing itself, then self-pity becomes the last defense of the self. I am holding on, even though I am f- my world is falling apart all around me and there's so much destruction. When the world is proving to, its, to me that it cannot be trusted, when the world is proving to me that it is not worthy of my trust, then self-pity tells me to grab on to whatever remains of this experience of life and to hold on to it at all costs. I will hold on to the self at all costs, even if everything else is crashing down all around me. Keep looking inward. Keep wallowing. Keep holding on. Keep staying enslaved. I mean, that's essentially what self-pity is. It's the holding on to the last semblance of the self even when everything else is crashing down around you. And every psychologist and every theologian will tell you that that is a completely hopeless cause. That there is no hope in that. You see, what the Jewish people needed to understand was that they were, in fact, the problem. And if the self is the problem, then holding on to the self will be of no help, which means that there is no self-help. And when they finally got serious about answering their question, why me? When they finally got serious about answering that, instead of just being self-absorbed in the midst of their troubles and clinging to their pride, they they came to some really powerful realizations. You see, they remembered for the very first time in a very long time the if that came with the covenant that God had made with his people. At Sinai, God said, if you are faithful to me, then things will go well. If you are faithful to me, then you will be blessed. But if you choose to reject me and abandon me and pursue the false gods, then you got to know that there are going to be consequences, that things aren't going to go well, that your life is going to come crashing down all around you. Now here in Babylon, they've lost everything. And isn't it true that 
when we have something to hold on to other than God that we usually do, even if that something is the last semblance of self. I mean, we call out to God in the times of desperation, not in the times of comfort. When life is going well, we have no reason for God. We don't think of God when life is going well. We tend to think of ourselves. We thank ourselves. We give ourselves the credit. But when things go bad, isn't that typically when we cry out to God? C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And it was in the midst of despair and pain of exile that the people finally found ears to hear what God had been trying to tell them for the last several hundred years. And not only that, but they found a voice to cry out to God in the midst of their agony. They stopped defending themselves in the midst of their trouble, and instead they began confessing. Daniel, after reflecting on the words of the prophet Jeremiah, confessed this, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and we have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. And not only does he begin to confess what the people have done, he confesses what the people have failed to do. He confesses their passivity when they should have been perpetuating justice in the land and they just let it go by. And they just turned a, a blind eye and a deaf ear to the cries of the pain, the pain the, those, those who were in pain and those who were crying out for justice. He, he confessed their complacency. He said, we have not listened to the servants, your prophets. And for another 10 verses, he confesses the sins of the people. And confession always leads to freedom. I believe this, that confession will always lead to your freedom. Because confession is the plea of the surrendered. And whenever there is more of God and less of us, then there is more freedom and less enslavement. And there is more peace and less anxiety. And there is more love and less fear. And there is more grace and less forgiveness. Confession is the pathway to a surrendered life. And it was in the midst of this act of confession that a new vision for the future had emerged for the people in slavery. Once Daniel is finished praying, the angel Gabriel comes and joins him along the banks of the river, and he gives him a vision of the future. He says this, Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people. That's roughly 490 years, or roughly 500 years generically you got about 500 years left he's trying to communicate to him, And your holy city to finish transgression. And so even though Daniel was aware that after 70 years the people were going to go back to the land, that physical exile was going to be over, Daniel understood from this that their exile would continue. That even though they, built the re- they rebuilt the temple, even though they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, that would not end the exile. They were still going to be enslaved to the wickedness. The human heart and the condition of the human heart, the transgressions would still remain. And so they would still be in exile. But he says this, at the end of 490 years, there will be an end to sin. Wickedness will be atoned for. Everlasting righteousness will be found. Visions will be sealed up. Prophecies will be sealed up. And the most holy one will be anointed. You see, God is going to do a new thing. God is doing a new thing. And this old, new thing will not be like the old Exodus, and it will not be like the old covenant, because the old Exodus, yes, liberated the people from the bondage of the Egyptians, but it did not liberate the people from the bondage of their sinful hearts. 
It did not free them from the wickedness that was deeply embedded within them. All it did was free them from the bondage of the Egyptians. But this new exodus, this is going to do something new. And this new covenant, it's not going to be written on stone and presented to you in fire. No, it's going to be presented to you in a new way. Jeremiah said this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. That's a new agreement, a new arrangement for what it means to be in relationship with God. And with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them uh, by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Rather, I'm going to put the law in their minds, and I'm going to write the law upon their hearts. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, when casting the vision for this new day, he said, I will give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from your heart of stone, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. The heart of flesh is pliable, it's moldable, it's transformable. No longer will you be stubborn and set in the ways of your sinful nature, but I am going to come and give you a heart that is flesh, that will beat with life. I am going to do something new in you. And I will put my spirit in you, he continues. And I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And so God says, I will be with you to do this in you. No longer is it going to be by your strength and your power. I'm not going to throw you a list of rules to follow and hope that you can abide by them. I am going to come and empower your life. And the people say, great, well, when is this going to happen? And how is it going to happen? When will this restoration take place? When is our salvation going to be realized? When will we be rescued? When are we going to be set upright? And the prophets continue, well, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, and he will do what is just and right in the land. And Zechariah added, I am going to bring my servant the branch And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. This is one of my all-time favorite verses in all of Scripture. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch that sprout from David's line. There will come a Messiah, an anointed throne from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah, and I will remove the sin of this land through him in a single day. And so the people waited. And the people watched. And they grew Every single passing day, they expected that a king like David would rise up to reestablish Israel's golden age. That through this Messiah and through this anointed one, that God would reestablish Israel. That he would do away with wickedness and the stubborn, stubborn heart that finds its way into far too many of us. And he will replace it with a heart of flesh that is moldable and pliable, that is willing to do God's will and to participate in what it means to be God's people. I'm going to invite the band forward, and we're going to reflect on this as we sing a couple final songs together. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament next week. I'm going to tell you some stories about what takes place in between those as we rush towards the birth of Jesus. Then we're going to celebrate Christmas next week. It's going to be great. encourage you back there. Birth of Jesus, next, next week, birth of Jesus. Um, and then everything begins to change as we uh, start this brand new series. But I do want to bring this down to our level. And I do want to conclude this series this morning on, on a challenging but I think hopeful note. You see, the people of God were mourning. They were in their distress. 
They felt the weight of the world and the human condition upon their backs, and they were mourning and they were weeping how they had been brought to this situation. And I think all of us can relate to that in some regard or another, can we not? That we know what it's like to feel pain, and we know what it's like to be in turmoil. We know what the human condition feels like when it's at its worst. We know what mourning feels like. And their response was to cry out in confession. It was not to look inward and say, oh, what was me? Like, why am I in this mess? No, their response was to cry out to God in the midst of their pain. In the midst of their exile, in the midst of their turmoil, they cried out to God. They did not wallow in self-pity. No, their brokenness was there to help them realize their dependence on God, and it took God casting them into exile for them to finally realize it, to turn their attention not inward, but outward and upward. And so maybe that's why you're in the position you are this morning. Maybe that's part of it, right? God is calling you to turn your attention not inward in self-pity and self-loathing upon your own situation, but outward and upward upon him and what he wants to do in you. You see, it was their confession that turned their heart. They acknowledged and they agreed with God on what they had done and what they had failed to do. And my friends, in a world where self-help and in a world where self-pity is the standard, my friends, this makes absolutely no sense to the world. That we would choose humility, that we would choose to agree that we're part of the problem, that we would take ownership in our part instead of blaming somebody else for what they did to us, that we would confess this makes absolutely no sense to the world, but my friends, this is the path to redemption. Humility is always the path to God. It's confession, it is opening our heart, it is exposing it and laying all of it bare, the junk, the crap, the, the, the hurt, the pain, the things that we have done to other people and the things that other people have done to us, all the things that we store up in our guilt and our, and our conscience and our shame, everything that we hold on to that we keep so close to us. Confession is saying, God, I'm going to open it up and I'm going to let it spill out before you. And on this table, God, here it is. I lay it out. I am exposing myself to you, God. And you know what happens when you open up your heart? When you open up your heart and you let it all spill out, you know what God comes and does? He takes it and he shoves it all away. And in so, you have this open chest that is able and willing to receive something now. But you know what? If you keep your heart closed, if you keep your heart closed to what God is trying to communicate in you, what God wants to do in you, if you just say, you know what? I'm not going to open myself up. I'm not going to confess. I'm going to keep it hidden. I'm not going to be exposed. I'm too ashamed. There's too much guilt there's too much hurt, I'm going to keep it closed, then you cannot receive what God wants to put in there. You need to open it up. You need to let it spill out in confession. You need to own it. You need to acknowledge it. You need to claim it as truth. John says this in his first letter in the New Testament. If we confess our sins, well, then he is faithful and he is just. He will forgive us our sins and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, when we agree that we have done wrong and failed to do right, when we stand confidently before God and we say, God, here it is, I'm exposed, here it is, he will forgive us and not only forgive us, he will make us right. He will purify us from all unrighteousness as he presents his forgiveness to us. So the Israelites sat in silence. 
They sat in silence and they reflected on how they had been brought to this position and they claimed ownership and they claimed their part in it. And they said, God, we have done wrong and we have failed to do right. They sat there and they waited and they thought and they prayed and they remembered and they confessed and they agreed. And after 70 years, God approaches them with hope. You see, the vocation that, that he had presented to his people, and they failed in time and time and time and time again, the reason God chose them and liberated them to be a light to the Gentiles, he began reinstilling his purpose for the Israelites, for the nation of Israel. He was calling his failed people to pick up their vocation again and begin moving forward. He was calling them once again to the marriage altar and to re-engage relationship with himself. I mean, can you imagine you can imagine, because this is so true of many of you, I know it is, that when you're sitting in the mess of your own destruction, when you're sitting in the rubble of the mess that is your life, then the world is just crumbling down all around you, and you are wrecked by what you've done, and you are wrecked by what other people have done to you. You feel hopeless because the future is just dark. You guys ever been there before? This, my friends, is when we must cry out to God, not blaming the world, not blaming other people, but confessing our part in it. We need to confess our mess. And yeah, there's a hashtag there because that's hashtagable, all right? Confess your mess. <laughs> we need to confess our mess. We need to take some ownership in how we got to the place that we are in. Because when we do that, when we open ourselves up to God and say, God, here is my junk, here is my mess, here's how I have participated in why my life is the way it is. God is not going to come to us towering over us, condemning us and judging us, chaining us to the ground and ridiculing us with shame and a heavy hand, but he will extend his hand to us and he will lift us up out of it. And he will embrace us with a new purpose. Listen to what God said through Jeremiah. When 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good purpose to bring you back to this place. So what did they do? They sat and they waited and they prayed and they thought and they confessed. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You know, when we quote this and we apply it to ourselves as we so often do, we don't realize that God is talking to a people who are enslaved in Babylon that who are hopeless and in despair, but they are confessing their mess and they are crying out to God for his deliverance. He says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you and, you will, and I will bring you back from captivity. See, what you are experiencing right now, this is not your end. This isn't the end. God is coming to a people who are enslaved and say, guys, Open up, you have confessed to me, and now you need to stand up and move forward because you have a vocation to fulfill as my people. You must stand up and move forward because I have a job for you to do. We think, man, like in, in my hopeless situation, in my despair, in the mess that I am in, and the destruction all around me, like there's no purpose for me. God can't use me. Like I've done too many wrong, too many things have been happening to me. Like I cannot get out of the rubble and the mess that I find myself in. I cannot move forward. And God comes to you and he says, humble yourself. Open up your heart and lay it before me. 
so that I can put something new within you. I have a task, I have a job for you to do, and I need you to stand up and get going. Because if you stay in your pride, you will always remain a mess. Humility is always the pathway forward. God said through Isaiah, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenanted people and a light for the Gentiles. That is the vocation. He is saying that you have a new vocation, the vocation that I've called my people to. Yeah, you're a mess. Yeah, you've sinned. Yeah, you failed. But come on, I have a new job for you to do. I need you to be the light to the Gentiles. I need you to open up the eyes of the people who are blind and to free the captives from their prison and to release them from the dungeons. Yeah, you're a mess. Yeah, you're in exile. Yeah, you're enslaved. But I have a job for you to do. And so get up, stand up, and get going. Therefore, the people sing a new song. You've hung up your harps for far too long. You've, you've wallowed in self-pity for far too long. You've, you've collapsed into yourself and you have been broken alongside the riverbanks and you just sat there whining and moping. Take down your harps because God's not done with you yet. My friends, you have a purpose to fulfill that God is calling you to fulfill. And so I pray that we might be a people who are real and honest about the situation that is our life and not to collapse into self-pity and not to bend inward and say, woe is me, I can't believe my life is what it is and it's so pathetic and ugh. But let's take some ownership and say, you know what, God, I, I am a participant in why my life is the way it is. Like, I may not be entirely blamed, God, but I am a participant in why my life is the way it is right now. And God, so I, I, call, I call out to you. I cry out to you, God, confessing my role in it, taking ownership of my role in it, and crying out to you, God. I lay it bare and I lay it exposed before you, God. And I now ask God, and I pray, God, and I believe, God, that you will come to me with your grace and with your forgiveness and you will reinsert into me a way forward and a new mission and a new vocation, a new job to do. Empowered by your love, empowered by your grace, God, you have called me to do this. And so Heavenly Father, we ask, that as we lay our lives bare before you, believing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. I'm honest, God, here it is. Here's my junk, here's my mess. And God, you say that you will take it all and nail it to the cross. And in its place, you will exchange it with your life, and your purpose. And so God, I do that believing and trusting that you will do that for me today. I cry out to you, God. I'm not wallowing in self-pity, God. I'm acknowledging. I'm not holding on to the self anymore. The self is the problem here, God. I have been selfish. And so I lay it before you, God. Take it away, please, God. Take it. 
far from me. As the east is from the west, take it, God. Take it. And now, Father, my heart is open to receive what you have for me. Your grace, your forgiveness, your love for me, the way that I am right now. I come to you as I am, Father. I pray that your love then would empower me to live as a representation of you, to be a light to the Gentiles, to set captives free. God, may my story inspire others. May it be true of us. May it be said of us. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.